Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. I believed I understood the land once long ago. A child running in his mother's footsteps who gleaned the names of birds that burst from the hedgerow, who pulled up solid fronds of fern that leaned out into his path to be sword and plowshare, imagined toys that soiled his hands and greened the valley sunlight as he caught foxes unaware when they bolted home across the failing pasture that spilled below his house. I would not dare now to say I knew anything of land. It has no master, only people who strive to learn and understand the minutes of it and the hours. The earth moves faster than we can comprehend. So seek a segment, find a strand of it that you can love. Listen to the movement in one hedge, attune to it, see what it will give, make no demand. If you've listened, you'll know we're balanced on the edge between oblivion and life. And the only charm for our salvation comes in the moments when we pledge to do no lasting damage, cause as little harm as we can manage in field or office, city street or farm. Brilliant. Follow that, as ever. Uh, in addition to Tim's role as a commissioner, he's also a published and an acclaimed playwright uh, and clearly uh, reads beautifully. And that sort of opening piece, I think, reflects some of the ways we've tried to approach this commission differently from the average uh, inquiry. Um, so, and first of all, I should say welcome to all of you, both here in the room and downstairs and also through the various sort of streaming uh, services. Uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome you all to the launch of both the uh, final report of Food Farming the Countryside Commission on Future in the Land, but also I'd hugely recommend to you the, the brilliant Field Guide for the Future, which is stuffed full of really encouraging stories about what brilliant people around up and down the length of the country are doing and are already showing us the way forward. Our, our challenge now is to work out how we scale, how we support them, and how we create systemic change. So we've tried to approach this since our launch in November 2017, which was memorable for a, a massive um, fire alarm, which caused a massive evacuation, which was a great start. Uh, and I was going off somewhere uh, dressed like a penguin, so I'm trying to sort of hope tonight goes smoothly. I promise no fire alarms are planned, so run like hell if you hear anything. Um, so we have sought to go out very much into the community. We've, we've um, built a commissioner group which is very diverse. Uh, we've talked to businesses, we've talked to food businesses, farmers, we've talked to environmentalists. Particularly important, I think, in this inquiry, we've talked to lots of health experts, uh, and I think um, we have really tried to listen, not, not least by getting out on a bike, literally for seven months, and getting around the, the country and hearing what the real people feeling, facing real realities are saying about what they'd like to see happen. And as the Secretary of State said today in an extremely important and wide-ranging speech, we are, uh, on one side, running out of time. You know, this is a challenge which is urgent. It's not good enough to say it would be lovely if we could make some changes. 
But I think also the process of our inquiry uh, gave me a huge amount of optimism about the creativity and the ideas and the willingness to change. And this is not a set of problems that are insoluble, but they do require big systematic change. Um, and I think we have identified three themes, which we will talk a bit more about later tonight. But firstly, that healthy food is everybody's business. We need to put health, and particularly public health, back at the centre of the food system. It's not just farming, it's the food production process. Uh, and try and really um, reorient the system back to the outcome, because we know that soil health is connected, animal health is connected, human health, the way we eat and, uh, and the way we approach food uh, is fundamental. And a lot of the costs that we're experiencing in the NHS are now being generated elsewhere. And this whole story has been about identifying these externalities and trying to change the system. The second bit is that um, there are some people I know worried that we might be farming bashers uh, and, and, and just sort of come at this from, from a negative angle. Far from it. We believe farming is poised to be a real force for good. It can unleash, I think, a real revolution, but it's a 10-year revolution. It's not something we can just say to people overnight, please can you move to a, a more ecologically sound model. But we have seen people wanting to do it. The key issues are about advice, um, particularly building on works like the Princess Countryside Fund has done, uh, and financial support to help people escape some of the investments they're locked into and some of the systems they have to deal with. And the final theme is about countryside is a place for, for, for all. It's a place of work, very diverse work, and we need to think about the rural economy in a very different way. But above all, we need to try and invest in it, um, particularly around the areas that everyone knows about, like rural broadband, 5G, but also skills, and particularly regenerative skills, and reconnecting the vast majority of our citizens who live in cities to the countryside for the benefits of the beauty and the experience that, in terms of their physical and mental health that they need. So we need to think very differently about this. We need to think practically, but we're also radical. We, we make no bones about the fact that some of these recommendations are a bit awkward. Some we think are very, just do it now. Some are test, some are debate. But rather than duck the issue, I think we've tried to bring it out and say, look, this is a set of, in the history and traditions of our hosts here at the RSA, things that you can do to make a different future. And I think this is a really timely uh, report to give us the chance to reimagine now it's a once-in-a-50-year opportunity to rethink our systems. Let's grab it. So I need to say a few thank yous. Firstly, and most massively, to Esme Fairburn, who funded this whole project and allowed us to be truly independent. Um, and that has been really helpful to say, much as we admire uh, lots of, uh, particularly what, what Michael has done at DEFRA, it's always a bit different when you say, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Um, actually, actually being able to say we're independent and we're diverse and we won't always agree and we're interested in holding the debate has, uh, has only been possible because of Esme Fairburn and also the Ashton Trust who funded a lot of research. Uh, thank you to the commissioners, many of whom are here tonight, and I hope you get a chance to meet later. Tremendous team. Um, the worst job of herding I've ever had to encounter, I have to say, in terms of the sheer fire, intellectual firepower and the sort of, uh, also the level of knowledge. It's quite scary. But it's great that we've come out uh, at the end of it. And the team led by Sue have done a fantastic job for us. So huge thank you there. And also the RSA who've hosted the, the whole commission and done it, I think, in the absolute best traditions of the RSA. So thank you, Tim and, and Matthew, for, for that. Um, so moving on now tonight, we're going to hear from a very distinguished uh, group of uh, speakers. We're going to start with uh, Henry Dimbleby talking about some of his work on the future food strategy for the UK. We'll then hear from uh, the Right Honourable Michael Gove MP, the Secretary of State for DEFRA, who's, uh, I think, on his second of his three speeches today, so much appreciate you taking the time, Michael. And then um, Duncan Selby from Public Health England, 
uh, and are hopefully reinforcing this link between food, farming, country and health, which we, we see uh, as, as absolutely critical. We'll have a chance to take a very few questions at that point um, because uh, the Secretary of State has got to get out to another uh, meeting. And then we'll hear from a panel of commissioners chaired by Sue. Uh, hopefully we'll give you a chance to, uh, again, ask some more questions. Uh, we're aiming to finish around 7.15, 7.30 timing, and then there'll be drinks uh, downstairs. So with that, um, I'd like to invite um, Henry Dimbleby as a DEFRA non-exec director, which I'm very proud, as the lead non-exec directors here, um, and to talk to us a bit about the, the food plan. Henry. Um, thank you, Ian. I had to say I felt uh, blessed by the timing of this report. When the Secretary of State asked me to lead a national food strategy. I thought I was going to have to work harder than I ever had done in my life, and you've done all the work for me, so thank you very much. Um, of course, there's still a lot to do. Fixing our food system is one of the great challenges faced by the developed world. It is a hugely complex project where an intervention in one part of the system carries serious risks of creating unwelcome and unintended consequences in another. And the good news is that everyone is finally taking it seriously. For a long time, it seemed to campaigners that concerns about the environmental and health consequences of our food system were dismissed as the domain of soft-minded hippies or sinister forces whose secret agenda was to bring down the capitalist system. Uh, this is no longer the case. All of us understand now the urgent need for change. In fact, it seems to me sometimes that we campaigners spent so long battering against the door of the castle, urging the government, anyone in society, to do something, that someone inside has now opened the door and we've all tumbled down in a heap on the floor uh, and aren't actually clear on where to go next. There's been so, so much effort on defining the problem that I feel that actually the policy uh, in this area is still weak. And that, into that environment... Um, I welcome this RSA report. It is a very serious piece of work, deeply evidenced, and most importantly, proposes many new and creative solutions in the space. As someone who spent the last few months reading hundreds of reports in the field, it is also a blessed relief to find something that is written so powerfully and clearly and so devoid of jargon. This is important, badly phrased, technocratic language is most productive, it's the most productive breeding ground for sloppy thought, and it was a real breath of fresh air to read this, this work. Sue, you've done an absolutely fantastic job. I'm delighted that you have agreed to share the detailed research with our team and to work alongside us to support the National Food Strategy team as we go about our work. We're going to be publishing more detail about the strategy and how we're going to go about it, how we're going to approach the analysis, the communication, the collaboration, and start a national conversation and also a call for evidence in the next few weeks. Towards the end of the year, we will publish some potential visions, descriptions of what a good food system might look like that we would aspire to alongside a rigorous and unstinting analysis of the system today and an examination of what the outcomes are, bad and good, and the power systems and the economics that support those outcomes. We will then look at what needs to happen to get us from A, the current broken system, to be the system where we want to be. Many of these actions cannot be calculated mathematically or economically. They're based on value judgments. What do we want our countryside to look like? How far do we want the state to protect us from our own bad diets? 
These are things that I can't decide, and nor is it right that the government should decree. So we're going to be creating citizens' assemblies, randomly selected, demographically representative groups to tussle through these issues, to talk through, in the face of evidence presented by experts, the various futures and actions required to get us there. We will publish our recommendations this time next year. The government has agreed to respond with a white paper after six months and have asked me to come back and review their actions 12 months after that. If you want to get involved, either to give evidence, to receive updates, or to help us lead that national conversation, little plug, please get in touch, nationalfoodstrategy.org, uh, and you can send us uh, your details. It's a fiendishly complex challenge, and one thing that is clear to me is that we need to improve the quality and nuance of our national debate if we're going to address it seriously. We cannot continue to play the ugly routine of blame and counter-blame, the narrative of goodies and baddies. I met a farmer on a farm the other day who described how his father wept as he tore out his hedges. He hated doing it, but he thought it was his patriotic duty. In every month of the war before May 1943, more merchant ships were sunk in the North Atlantic than we were able to build. Churchill, after the war, said that the only thing that really frightened him was the U-boat peril starving us to death. We are where we are for a reason. The heroic efforts of people like that farmer kept the country fed. But now we have a different set of problems, and I trust we will meet those with equal heroism. I'm optimistic that we in this country have the talent, the creativity, and the sheer stubbornness to lead the world in this work. And that effort starts here today with the launch of this commission's work. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd now like to invite um, Secretary of State um, for DEFRA, Right Honourable Michael Gove MP, to come and address us. Um, the first, one, first thing I wanted to thank you for, Ian, and your entire team, is having a poet introduce the evening this, um, uh, or, 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 the, or the report this evening. Um, some of you may know, others may not know, that the very first uh, white paper produced by the very first Environment Secretary in the United Kingdom was prefaced with a poem. Uh, it was Philip Larkin's Going, Going, in which he painted a rather bleak picture of decline. And it was the mission of that first Environment Secretary and that first white paper to seek to reverse that decline. But uh, more than 40 years on, the warnings it contained not just in Larkin's poem, but the warnings contained in that white paper have still been imperfectly heeded. As Ian's report, as the commissioners make clear, it has been the case that for uh, almost all of my adult lifetime, we've seen our environment deteriorate, we've seen our rural economy face increasing strains, and we've also found that our farmers, despite their best efforts, and despite the nobility of their intentions, now find themselves in a position where, as one of the farmers quoted in the Commission's report makes clear, they can't even afford the food that they themselves produce. So the time could not be more ripe for fresh thinking. And in that sense, we need fresh thinking about food, about farming, 
and about the countryside, and we need to integrate thinking on all three in order to ensure that we have an holistic programme for government. Now, we have an opportunity, thanks to a confluence of factors, which both Ian and Henry and the other commissioners have alluded to. The first is a growing awareness that our food system is having a deleterious effect on health. We're the first generation which is more likely to die as a result of the choices that we've made, or indeed the choices that we are encouraged to make, than as a result of the forces that are visited upon us. In other, in other terms, we're far more likely to succumb to uh, the diseases of obesity, like heart disease and diabetes, than we are to the infectious diseases that claimed our ancestors. And as a result, if we have a situation where, amidst all the bounty and abundance that our economy has generated, we are finding that our food system is responsible for costs for the NHS and shortened and impaired lives for so many, then we need to act. And we also need to act, again, as Henry and as Ian and the other commissioners have pointed out, because it is not as though human health is being compromised because we're putting the health of our landscapes and the health of our environment first. We know, even though there have been many, many uh, enlightened farmers and many, many who have striven to work against the trends of agricultural intensification, we know that soil health is poorer. We know that animal health in some areas has been compromised, not least through the way in which antibiotics have been used as a prophylactic. And we know that as a consequence of that, we need to think about how we can ensure animal health and welfare, human health and the health of our environment are all improved. And in this Commission's report, there are powerful arguments that no government, certainly not this government, can afford to ignore about the need for urgent action. Now, I believe that that urgent action will go with the grain of what almost every farmer in this country wants to do. Because exactly as Ian said, there is a tendency sometimes to bash and to criticise those who work and who love the land for some of the things that have gone wrong. But as a friend of mine uh, uh, has uh, pointed out, a friend of mine who acts as an economist in DEFRA, show me the incentives and I'll show you the behaviour. The problem has been that for too many in farming, the incentives have been poorly aligned. And the type of farming that they want to be responsible for, producing the highest quality food, and at the same time respecting the environment and stewarding the countryside, has been difficult to pursue. And so that's one of the reasons why, and I know that in this room, there will be many different views about the wisdom or unwisdom of leaving the European Union. One thing that we can all agree on is that we have, now that we are leaving the European Union, an opportunity to learn from the mistakes of the common agricultural policy and the way, in essentially, in which it transferred wealth simply on the basis of someone's productive agricultural land holding, and we can instead use public money to deliver public goods, like improved health, like a better environment, and like public access. And, of course, to quote another poet, Oliver Goldsmith, ill fares the land to hastening ills a prey, where wealth accumulates and men decay. One of the other points that the commissioners bring forward is the importance not just of ensuring that farming is productive, but ensuring that our broader rural economy and our rural society is healthy and resilient. And that involves both of us, all of us, recognizing that as we reform how we support farmers, 
What we're doing is not just providing investment in the environment for the public. We're providing those who work and who love our land with an appropriate sense that they are the backbone of Britain, the best of us, and that their efforts are at last being properly rewarded, their travails understood, their ambitions uh, 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 given all the backing that government possibly can. And that takes me to my final point um, about the countryside. Um, a third poet, Wordsworth, uh, made the point that nature never did betray the heart who loves her. We're all shaped by our environment. All of us have somewhere that we love, somewhere near or where we grew up, that has shaped our attachment to home. And that love of home is one of the first wellsprings for care for the environment and care for others. If we believe that we share a home with others, we want to ensure that it's passed on to the next generation in an enhanced state. We want the beauty and the attachment with which we've grown up to be our legacy for others. And what this report so powerfully does is embody that sense of how natural beauty and also environmental science can come together to provide the wellspring for political action. And that's why I want to thank Ian for his leadership, all the commissioners for their work. They have laid out a clear manifesto and programme for action, and it's now up to us in government, working with talented people like Henry and others, but most of all, working with those who live in and love our countryside to do better. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Secretary of State. We'll now invite Duncan Selby, the Chief Executive of Public Health England. Uh, thank you, Ian. I have no idea how to follow that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've, I just, that, that was the speech I wanted to give. Um, health is wealth, prosperity, uh, people having jobs, uh, jobs that people can get in rural areas. Uh, the importance of uh, ensuring that you know we, we join these things up in, in the way that, that we haven't uh, quite before. I, I think there's a sea change. It's a it's a very notable. But everything matters uh, about the food production and distribution, the health and well-being of, of farmers and rural communities. But also having a, a discussion about the impact on the health of our people, uh, and and just how essential that is to the prosperity of our country and the future of our country and and this uh, uh, the phenomenon we face it is it's a it's a phenomenon all around the world the secretary of state says certainly in our uh, in in our uh, part of the world it's not infectious disease it's taking people away it's it's long-term conditions and you know for every year uh, that our people consume more food uh, every year uh, our waistlines uh, increase uh, diabetes uh, consume about 10% of the whole of the NHS budget. Uh, two in three of uh, adults being overweight and uh, one, in, one in three 11-year-olds. And this is not inevitable. Uh, food is everyone's business. We are uh, in, entirely uh, as one together. This is not in conflict. I am looking forward to working with DEFRA, working with the Commission, all of government, about how we make food central, everyone's business, to the health and well-being uh, of our of our, of our people. The, the NHS can do more. Uh, local government can do more. Government can do more. The government buying standards 
about how we set standards and how we ensure sustainable uh, supply. Uh, there are people in this room who have been looking at this for years and now being heard. The steak pie that was served in a local hospital that had travelled 25,000 miles. The chicken sourced in uh, Asia ending up in our sandwiches. Incredible, an opportunity for a win-win uh, for local uh, procurement to a standard. Uh, and, and the report speaks to this and much more. In fact, every, every page you turn, that field guide is brilliant, and every page you turn, there's something that's relevant to the health of our people, mental health, procurement, and so on. So I want to say thank you for this work. Uh, to say thank you to DEFRA for the work that we have been doing together and I know we're going to be doing together. And I love it. I mean, I couldn't commit more to this being a central part of our work for the next number of years to come and to play our fullest part, not in just describing what the problems are, but what on earth we can do about them that helps our farmers, that opens up our countryside, that makes um, sense uh, for our consumers. Uh, affordable, good food in places that everyone can access. Health and wealth, the health of the people. I'm not actually that interested in public health. Can I say <laughs> that? It is actually, uh, as a profession, as a, as a discipline, as a, a body of expertise, it is actually second to none. Uh, but it's not the point. The point is what does it take to improve the health of the people, or the public's health? And this speaks to the public's health like none other. Thank you for allowing me to contribute this evening. Um, right, well, we've got some um, time uh, to take uh, a few questions. Um, I don't know if uh, we're going to keep the lights up a bit. Right, we've got a uh, microphone at the back. Uh, and I'm right, that's better. I actually can see people. Excellent. Um, shall we start on the right? And then I think we've got a question at the back. Um, just one quick point. Um, this subject generates great passion, which tends to generate really long statements <laughs> and really long questions. I'm, I'm actually going to guillotine people who go on too long. I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to make this short, sharp. This is an opportunity to ask the panel questions, not to make a manifesto statement. Right. Thank you. Um, Sorry, could you identify yourself first? Um, Lucy Wills, I'm an RSA fellow, and um, congratulations on such a far-reaching document. I've had a quick flick through, and one of the things that concerns me slightly um, is the emphasis on new building. Um, construction generates a lot of... Um, 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 uh, sorry, Impact. it's really labour-intensive, and it also um, um, generates a lot of um, uh, uh, carbon. That's mm -hmm. the word I'm looking for. And basically, can we use the buildings that we've got better? And should we actually be cutting down the amount that we're building on greenbelt land because we've already built on so much land that's productive? I'll, I'll pass over maybe. I'll just two comments. Um, 30,000 villages around the country, if we built 10 homes in each, we would solve the rural housing shortage, which is a real problem. Uh, but absolutely, we should be refurbishing and reinvesting in the existing stock, and there's a huge opportunity to go after that. So that's definitely the one. I, d I don't know whether any observations here. The... Um, 
There's so much that I'd like to say, but let me try and keep it brief. Um, uh, the, the, the first thing is, you are right, that we can um, use existing properties um, more effectively. And one of the things that this government has done and previous governments have done is to reform aspects of the planning system, like the use class order system, to make it easier for commercial properties, often in town centres that are no longer used uh, for that purpose, to become residential properties. And certainly one of the ways in which we can revive town centres is by making sure that there are more people who can live literally above the shop, or indeed where the shop or office used to be. Mm -hmm. so you are absolutely right. The second thing is I agree with you about the green belt. Um, I think that uh, when people make the argument that parts of the green belt, and this is true, are uh, scrubby and scrabby um, and poorly uh, maintained and not a nature depleted environments, but when people say let's build on it, my um, uh, response is no, let's make it truly green. Mm. This is a part of um, our, our land that we can uh, actually restore to, to, uh, to health in environmental terms. Um, and then the broader question of, of new development, we do need it, just because of the nature of our population. And there's a broad argument about the impact of population growth overall, of course, on the environment, which I shan't get into. But given where we are, what we can do is that we can show that we can uh, build homes in a way um, which does commit to uh, a zero-carbon ambition. It is the case that increasingly modern methods of design, uh, the move away from steel and concrete and other materials, can allow us to, uh, to build in a particular way. And one of the other things that we can do is that we can also build new communities so that the, the Garden City spirit of Ebenezer Howard is there in how we think about the creation of those communities rather than simply the, the sprawl and the ribbon development that we saw yeah. characterising um, uh, what happened in the 1930s and at other points. And then the final uh, thing that I would say is that Ian is right. If we're going to make sure, the word sustainable is, is critical, sometimes it's misused in planning terms, if we're going to make sure that we do have sustainable rural communities, then we do need to recognise that we will need uh, new answers to housing there. And there are um, organisations like Community Land Trust can play a particular yeah. part in making sure that rural people or those who live and work there have a chance to have a stake in property without having to uh, compete uh, with those who... who uh, uh, have the capital to be able to buy the land as well as the home. Okay, can we spread the question out? We've got two or three people here. I'm sorry, it's only one microphone, so this is a random... If you could just again say who you are and... Okay. Um, Georgina Downs, um, agriculture journalist and um, campaigner and full-time carer for my mother now at the, as, as, as well. Um, there's a section in the report regarding the uh, call for stringent controls for uh, crop spraying and pesticide use around residential areas, which is obviously very positive to see. However, yeah. I would point out it's not a case of more stringent controls. There are currently no controls and no protection for people living in the locality of pesticide spray crops, and it's something that uh, needs urgent action. I have nearly 10,000 people who've signed a petition to you, Mr Gove, uh, regarding the adverse impacts that they've had, and it'd be great to be able to have an opportunity to be able to present that to you and present the evidence and the facts, because the, unfortunately the report was rather lacking in the area of uh, that aspect um, of health impacts. I would say we did specifically cover that point, Trudina, but so we did recognise the issue. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. And we are uh, aware of it, but it is now quite a slightly different question. I don't know if Michael you want to... Um, uh, very powerful. Um, uh, uh, our mantra at DEFRA is to be uh, led by the science. That's why we've taken some decisions which uh, have meant that some within the broader um, uh, farming world have been critical of us. Um, and then there have been some other decisions that we've taken where uh, well-intentioned campaigners have been critical of us. But we've always sought to use the science in order to explain why we're acting as we're acting. But I go back to the earlier point that I made about incentives. There's a broader question here, which I shan't get into yeah. now, about why 
a, a, a particular approach to land use is incentivized in a particular way and what the hidden incentives may be and how we can make them more transparent in order to support yeah. farmers to make the choices that they really want to make, not those that they feel they have to make. Okay, can we move um, just behind, just there, one there, and then can we go to the back in the middle and then over there? Right. Sorry, yeah. Uh, Graham Biggs, I'm a fellow of the, uh, the, the, the RSA and chief executive of the Rural Services Network. Uh, in the report, the Commission has uh, commended the Rural Services Network's call for uh, a rural strategy or, or framework uh, and the report of the House of Lords Select Committee, but the government's response, in effect, rejects that. My question is, is the door still open with government for further discussions on the principle? Uh. We um, agreed with many of the recommendations in uh, the report by the new House of Lords Committee, which is chaired by Don Foster. The one thing that we didn't say is that we wanted to have a rural strategy overall. And there are, there are several reasons for that, which I shan't go into in detail now. But what we have done is that we've established a specific rural economy board within DEFRA, chaired by another of uh, the non-executive directors who works alongside Henry and myself. Um, and it has a particular mission to ensure that other government departments that yeah. have a direct influence through their policy making on what happens in rural Britain uh, make sure that their policies are aligned on everything from uh, the rollout of full fibre broadband uh, to making sure that we make the right decisions when it comes to local transport. Um, but uh, uh, as I say, I'd be more than happy uh, in due course to explain why we think that of the many good ideas, that particular requirement to have a rural strategy overall may be a diversion of energy from some of the other more urgent things that we need to do. Okay, one at the back, just there, sorry. Hi, I'm Alexandra Hill, reporter at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Um, so last year, the Bureau revealed that there are nearly 800 uh, US-style mega farms uh, in the British countryside. Um, that was pig and poultry farms, some housing over a million chickens or over 20,000 pigs. Do you think the uh, kind of unchecked and until now unregulated spread of US-style mega farms fits with the need to transform uh, British farming into something more sustainable? Right. Um, I wouldn't say that there's anything US-style about the approach that we take to animal welfare in this country. And if you were to ask anyone who's a pig farmer, um, uh, about um, the welfare standards that we have in the UK, they would be proud of those welfare standards and point out that they're higher than in many other European nations and certainly abroad. I'm um, a huge supporter of um, mixed livestock farming and organic farming. And of course, Helen Browning, who's one of the commissioners, uh, runs um, a highly profitable business, which is um, an organic <laughs> farm. Um, <laughs> this wasn't what she told us. <laughs> Let me rephrase it. A highly... <laughs> Successful sure. business yeah. Yeah. Good that turns a profit. <laughs> and she is, as her wonderful book um, published uh, earlier this year makes clear, someone who uh, loves the animals and the pigs that she rears, and I know that from having, having seen them. Uh, now, of course, there are some concerns about some particular practices, but I think the right thing to do is to, rather than stigmatising big farming concerns per se, to, um, to look at what's done, because someone else who may not often be praised... Um, um, in a room like this, but who should be is James Dyson, 
because uh, having visited uh, Dyson Beeswax Farms, I know that, um, that James is absolutely committed to the high standards of animal welfare, um, and he runs a major farming concern. Some might say it's a mega farm, but what he provides is an opportunity for people who want to have a career in agriculture mm -hmm. to rise to a very senior level to manage a large um, uh, 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 part of a, a very significant farming concern. And in so doing, I've seen James, uh, out of his own pocket, subsidize um, environmental um, uh, leadership of, of, of a great kind. Um, and I think that um, uh, uh, one of uh, the members of uh, James's board is here um, uh, in this very audience. Nice. And I would uh, emphasize that um, uh, uh, when it comes to judging how good a farm is, uh, size isn't everything. <laughs> right, on that note. Um, one there, and then we'll come over here. Yeah. Joe Lewis, Chair of the Food Ethics Council and Policy Director at the Soil Association. Uh, really encouraging to uh, hear the words from, from Duncan about um, joining up health and the environment and making food central. Um, again, uh, Secretary of State, you've shown um, voice bold ambitions around the role of procurement. Uh, there's a great opportunity with the reletting of the school fruit and vegetable scheme, a contract that's held by the Department of Health, will be relet at the end of the year. That Every small child in school gets a free piece of fruit or vegetable. Uh, currently, uh, only 5% of the pears and 14% of the apples are from the UK. And pesticide residues are higher than in conventional supermarket produce because so much is imported. And I just wondered if this might be an early opportunity to demonstrate uh, how DEFRA and Department of Health can work together to demonstrate how to do things differently. I will, I will ask the um, co-author of the school food plan to say a little <laughs> word and then hand over to them. So I think this is ju just one example of one of the biggest issues that we face in national food strategy. There's a lot of talk, a lot of fight at the moment about... Um, uh, banning, removing things from our diets. And the problem with taking things out is you don't know what replaces them. And the single thing that we know works is to eat more vegetables. And if, if you were to try to make one thing happen to our diets in the nation, that is what you would make happen. I think we should be looking not just at schools, but across the system about incentives that we can put in to help us make vegetables more available, cheaper, uh, and educate people to eat them. So I would say that is one tiny area of a massive issue that we have to understand and make recommendations yeah. on. Well, very briefly, I mean, contrary to popular belief, we don't actually want to ban legislate, regulate, and tax uh, the, the, you know, everything that people enjoy. Um, I might otherwise be known as the miserable git of the UK that anything that you enjoy doing from gambling to drinking to eating, I, I have a problem with. It's actually not true. Um, the beginning of life um, is the most important stage to get right. And, and our schools are an amazing asset uh, for teaching and for spreading um, uh, good practice. Uh, procurement at the heart of, of that, yeah. and, and there's just simply no there's simply no um, uh, substitute for, for getting for getting this right. Now the whole issue about where does that food come from and and the sustainability of it and it being in the interests of prosperity for our farmers and our food producers that's really the stuff of this next yeah. strategy and something that we're very okay, I mentioned about sustainability and about uh, the importance of this, but the beginning of life and and, yeah. and the schools are the, the vital thing to get right. Thank you. Um, procurement clearly is a central part which we picked up. I'm afraid we're out of time. We've got one last question, and it's the last person with a mic standing. So, 
Thank you. I, my name is Rebecca Veal. I work for the National Pig Association. Um, so um, anyone Good. has any questions about pigs, please come and ask me. Um, I wanted to talk about the one thing that um, there's some very interesting points in this report, but it doesn't um, really come back to um, the importance of price because mm -hmm. ultimately farms are businesses and so they have to be yep. profitable. There's been a huge amount of policy work done over the last few years um, from when we um, decided to leave the EU. Um, a lot around volatility measures mm -hmm. to encourage investment and things like that. I wanted to ask the panel on their thoughts around integrating some of the ideas with, within the report, which are probably more holistic, and then some of these more tangible policy um, ideas that have been developed over the last few years. I should say that one of the things we were very focused on as commission is providing stability and certainty for farmers is something we kept on hearing. And that the, the shocking thing is how much of the value chain the farmers actually get. And, and can we rethink that? But I don't know if, uh, for, as a final comment, um, maybe Michael and... No, I, I, I think Ian is absolutely right. And, and um, I, made, I made reference um, in my remarks earlier to the quotation, I think it is actually from a sheep farmer who makes the point that uh, he can't afford the food that um, uh, he produces. Uh, there are... Um, there are questions that we need to ask in which the Agriculture Bill seeks to address about making sure that the primary producer gets a fair price for what they produce. And uh, there are a variety of complex economic interactions, but one thing I, I, I would want to say and would want to underline, following on from what we said earlier, is uh, Henry is right. Uh, we should eat more vegetables. Um, but one of the things that we must also remember is that um, there is no more effective way of getting high-quality protein into your diet um, than eating British meat. <laughs> yeah. Okay, do you want to follow that or are you going to... I, I, I would say I think that there's another major structural issue about price of food and costing in the externalities and what that does to the overall uh, basket cost of food for people and also the relative costs of foods that hurt us and foods that don't hurt us. Yeah. And that is probably, I mean I talked about the vegetable thing, but probably that issue about how you both build the externalities of producing food into the food and allow those people who are the most affected by diet-related disease, the poorest 5% in our society, that is the kind of, if there was one tension, that is the tension that is our job to try and resolve. Fantastic. Um, could you join me in thanking the entire panel, and obviously Michael Gove. Thank you very much, all. Um, we'll just reset briefly. Um, the next part of this uh, evening is a session chaired by Sue Pritchard, the redoubtable director of the uh, Food Farming Commission, who has carried us through uh, magnificently to today. Uh, she is going to be uh, on a panel, and I'll let actually her do the introduction. So, Sue, come on up, and a round of applause for Sue. to say it's been one of the greatest privileges of my entire life to be able to do this work at this time and with this group of extraordinary people who have worked with such passion and such commitment and such resilience over what has been a, a turbulent couple of years and maybe there's a few turbulent years still still to come um, but it has been a joy and an absolute pleasure 
Um, for those of you who are a bit grumpy at the manal that we started out with, we are remedying that <laughs> right now, as you can see. And this particular, <laughs> this particular group of women are an extraordinary and inspiring group of women. So we have Helen Browning, who we've heard about already, highly profitable Helen Browning, <laughs> forever known as, um, who is also chief executive of the Soil Association. We have Shirley Kramer, who is chief executive of the Royal Society for Public Health, Baroness Barbara Young, who has an illustrious career across health, across environment, and is currently chair of the Woodland Trust, and also sat on the House of Lords Select Committee on the Rural Economy. And last, but absolutely by no means least, we have Dame Fiona Reynolds, a similarly illustrious career, who's now um, Master of Emmanuel College, but formerly Chief Exec of um, the National Trust, and holding a whole host of other commission roles at the moment, which you might mention. <laughs> Um, and we're, we're going to have um, a, a much more informal panel, a much more informal conversation, and, and, and frankly, a short one, because the men have taken up all of the time, <laughs> as, as usual. Um, but, but we will, we're going to just hear from um, these wonderful women, and then we'll take some um, questions from the floor, and there'll be plenty of time for more conversation um, down in the Benjamin Franklin room afterwards. So I'm going to start with you, Shirley, if that's all right, because I guess when you were asked to join a commission around food and farming and the countryside, that might not have been the sort of work that you were expecting to do. Just so tell me why you said yes. So for ages, I've been thinking about the fact that if you look at public health, Across the piece, you're talking about tobacco or alcohol or whatever, it's so siloed. And you're dealing in silos and people aren't silos. They're, you know, I was, I'm an ex-social worker from many years ago and we have to think holistically. And then you began to look at the problems we have in the food system and in health and well-being. And you realize that the kind of work we've been doing, which is wonderful public health teams around the country, dealing with overweight children or diabetes problems and putting you know, programs together, quite expensive programs, to deal with, um, to lose weight. And you think, well, actually, wouldn't it be more sensible to hit this at source and do something about prevention? And of course, clearly, that's about the food we eat and the environment we're in. And so then you begin to bring it all together and you say, that's the... Uh, way we need to drop out. And actually, Helen and I had had several conversations about this over the years anyway. And one of, uh, I think, the things that I felt most passionate about in this was to say, what can we do about health inequalities? Because what we know in public health and is that there's a real difference if you live in a disadvantaged area, so that's an area with what we call, in public health terms, multiple indices of deprivation. That means there's lots of things going wrong. But the children in those areas are twice as likely to be obese as their wealthier counterparts in other areas. And that's just not fair. So in my heart, uh, the social justice part of uh, what we've been working on, I think, in the Commission is really, really important in bringing that together. Because every child and every family has the right to have healthy and affordable food. And what we know is there are food deserts that, in some areas that 
Children are getting really awful food, high in fat, salt, sugar. We've been doing some great innovative things, and Public Health England's got the, you know, we've got the taking 20% of sugar out. But what if we could provide all those children with really healthy food right at the beginning? That was keeping the country alive. I'm from Cumbria, so of course I've got a... a Think about uh, the rural communities, keeping them alive and making sure we're having good local food, that our procurement's strong. And that uh, one of the people said within the uh, wonderful field guide is, you are what you eat, what it's been eating. So basically, <laughs> if you've got a, you know, uh, you, you want to know what that cow's been eating, what that chicken's been eating. So, you know, we need to think about these things and bring it into the round. So, for me, human health and animal health and planetary health are one and the same, and we need to make it a win-win for everybody. And I do think the Commission, uh, and I really pay tribute to working uh, with all bits, all the sectors, all the different commissioners, have been amazing and have really, um, really embraced the health agenda, I should say, and which has um, gladdened my heart and made me feel really proud to be part of it. One of the things that we've been pushed back about, though, is that some of our recommendations in the report may make food more expensive. What do you say to that charge? So it's such a false dichotomy. We hear this all the time. Oh, we have to keep food cheap. You know, the 199 um, chicken and chips on the high street, which we see in, in the worst places. Why is it? Why should we? Farmers need to be paid properly. Um, we need affordable food we need. We can have healthy and affordable food. We're not doing that. We need to make the healthy option the default option. And it's really not at the moment. And I don't like to talk about lifestyle choices because lots of people don't have a choice. We need to be talking about better options for people so that the, the food that they've got in their neighborhood is healthy. They don't have to really think about it at all. And I think we stigmatize people um, un, just unfairly around this. So we need to be, I think, very, very argumentative about this and really push back on it because I think it makes it, it's, you know, a really bad argument. And we've, you know, it comes out in other areas where we've got poor high streets and in, you know, other, we're paying for it in the system in general for this very cheap and very poor food. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Now, Helen, you, you're not the only farmer on the panel. No. Um, as my, as my, there's several of yes, us. Yes, there is. And as my husband will attest, we're not a profitable farm. But you are, you are, you are, you are a profitable farm. But, but I think all farmers, um, no matter what you're doing, can, are feeling a bit beleaguered at the moment. And a lot of farmers are saying, you know, we feel as if you know, we're being blamed for the decisions that we've made through the policy instruments that we've been asked to follow. What is it like... How does it feel being a farmer at the moment? I think it feels pretty scary. Um, I mean, I don't think farmers have ever faced this much uncertainty. Uh, you know, we are right on the cliff edge of possibly a no-deal Brexit, which could be shatteringly catastrophic for farming, yes. particularly for some sectors. Yes. We don't know what the trade deals are going to look like in the long term. There's still a lot of nervousness about that. We don't know what the payment system is going to look like. We don't know what public goods are going to be paid for. We don't know what Elms is going to look like. It's uh, what metrics are going to be used. I mean, it just feels, I think, um, like the most treacherous time in many ways. And I think, you know, at the same time, we've seen lots of farmers everywhere doing, plowing on and doing brilliant stuff. And, you know, we've just 
put up a new dairy. How mad is that? Is that, is that foresighted and planning and forging ahead and investing for the future? Or is it just absolutely bonkers right now? Mm. Planting all our agroforestry yeah. trees. I mean, is that, you know, so when we've surveyed the farmers as part of the commission, um, we got some really clear messages. And the first one, Ian's already mentioned, they want that clarity, that economic framework that the minister talked about too, uh, which incentivizes the good stuff, uh, possibly disincentivizes the bad stuff. Um, but I think that we've got to get that framework in place as quickly as possible. Uh, we know we need um, that, some serious help, uh, actually, good, unbiased advice and support, not just technical advice, actually, or business advice, but I think one of the shocking things that we found uh, in, through this work was the level of stress and mental health challenge in the farming community. It is a really, really big issue, much bigger than I had actually previously recognised, and farmers need support around that. They're going to need investment. This is not something where we can make this switch without... Uh, without investment, uh, and they're going to need relevant in innovation. I think putting farmers in the driving seat of change and making sure that the research and the innovation that we do is in their name and that they are actually doing a lot of it and supported to do it is going to be crucial. And I think we all know as farmers, wherever we sit, that one of the things we've got to get better at is cooperating. Cooperation and collaboration, I think, is going to be a big part of the future. So I think it really feels really scary, but I think we also see farmers really up for change if they get those, uh, that support and help and clarity. And that's what makes me uh, feel quite optimistic, actually, that it's about time we as farmers stopped feeling a bit victimised and beleaguered and did have the opportunity to be the force for change that I think we can be. Lovely. And tell, tell me a little bit, tell everybody else, because I know the answer to this. <laughs> tell, us, tell us a little bit about the vision for farming that you see. And in fact, you have quite literally invested in on your, on your farm, in your business. Well, we talk about a 10-year transition to agroecology, to a much more sustainable farming system, where we are working with nature... Um, and where we're using land in a multifunctional way. So not trying to think that, you know, you farm uh, incredibly hard in one area and then, uh, you know, just abandon other areas. I think it is going to be really important to end up with that multifunctional land use. Um, and where mixed farming, um, so for me, rotational farming, bringing back rotations, livestock, building fertility that allows us to grow crops without needing to keep using lots of synthetic nutrients and pesticides. Um, that kind of farming will reinvigorate our, our natural world and it will cut our carbon emissions and it will feed people healthily and well. And I think we've got good evidence uh, that that is possible. But that's a big way. Some farmers are doing that already. Um, but uh, even those of us who are have got a lot further to go. We shouldn't be at all complacent um, that even those, of, those who have actually made steps in, in that direction um, haven't got some big challenges ahead. We're still using red diesel. Uh, we've still got to sort out energy on our farms. We're still not handling slurries, manures, perhaps as well as we could be. So there are some big challenges ahead. And, uh, but I can, I think the vision we've set out for farming, I hope is one, is one that all farmers will feel they want to embrace with the right support and incentives. Thank you. Thank you. 
Barbara, you've had um, two bites of this cherry over the last six months. You sat on the House of Lords Select Committee into the future of the rural economy, as well as support the work that we were doing, the Commission. One of the things that struck me in this work, and indeed contributed to your work at the House of Lords, was that um, for, for many people, they seem to think that um, all farmers are driving around in Range Rovers, and every rural village is a, is a picturesque idyll, or, or alternatively, it's a, it's a giant theme park for people to you know, pop along to on the weekends. That's not the picture, is it, that your committee and indeed we found when we travelled the UK. The challenges in the countryside are much more complex than that. I was surprised, I must admit, um, you know, because I'm a kind of Range Rover driving uh, Hunter Wellied person. Um, but. Um, <laughs> um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Should have thought that one through. <laughs> um, but, you know, the countryside isn't now primarily about farming. There are now more business startups in rural areas than there are in towns. Um, young people are having to leave the countryside because they can't get services, they can't get transport, they can't get access to affordable housing, uh, they, have, they can't get on broadband or on, on the telephone. Um, and we're seeing an increasing growth in the number of elderly in, in, in rural communities because people are living longer and it's become a retirement destination. But the services are rubbish to support elderly people as they're rubbish to support young people. Um, so we're experiencing, and I was quite shocked by the depth of poverty that there is in many, many rural communities. Even within, within one village, you will have the rich end and you'll have the poor end. And that poverty is very, very intractable unless we get some real action on some of these um, issues. So there's got to be investment in rural services at the moment with the uh, cuts on local authorities very difficult to see how that can happen. Uh, more and more dependence on local communities doing their own thing, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we also need support for rural businesses, and I'm appalled at the local enterprise partnerships who are my latest bet noir, who channel lots of money, but to be honest, are very rural blind, and we need them to be much more clued up on what is required in rural communities, because there is energy in these startups that needs fostering. I disagree entirely with the Secretary of State. I do think that um, we do need a rural strategy. Um, I'm very glad he's set up the group that's doing rural proofing across government departments, but that's not enough. We've got to have a longer-term vision of the sort that Helen's described. Um, and we also need a land use strategy for England. There's one for Scotland, there's one for Wales, there's one for Northern Ireland. But you know, the pressures on land are now huge. We need land for carbon sequestration. We need it for flood risk management. We need it for food production. We need it for building affordable houses and creating sustainable rural businesses. What is land for in this country? We haven't answered that question. The thing that really encouraged me was this. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, it's the Field Guide for the Future. This it will warm the cockles of your heart because as we went around the country on our bike tours, there were just example after example of rural communities doing their thing in a variety of ways, self-starting, self-sustaining. That's not true of all rural communities. There are some that absolutely lack leadership and where sod all is happening, but many, many communities have examples. So we try to pull this together as a kind of, if you want to do X in wherever, there's somebody else in the country who's already doing it. Go and see them, and here's, here's the telephone directory of it. So I hope people will see it as an ongoing field guide, because the reality is 
we've got to find ways of fostering and spreading some of this good practice of enabling communities to become more self-sufficient. Don't hold your breath waiting for the government to do stuff. It is important that they do. Uh, it is important that we get more rural focus at all levels of our decision-making in democracy. But at the heart, a lot of this is going to have to be driven from the bottom up. So my text for this is that the sorts of problems that we're seeing in the rural communities um, will be addressed to a large extent if we can find ways of enabling these very vibrant initiatives in rural communities to become the norm uh, uh, because vibrant rural communities are at the heart of the future and future sustainability. Thank you. Thank you. Let's come back to land, mm. Fiona. This is your specialist subject, isn't it? Sometimes we've heard debates that take a rather utilitarian view of land use. How do you like us to be treating it differently? Well, I, like the Secretary of State, was incredibly moved by Tim's opening poem. I think it summed up the attitude that in this country we've had to land for the past, particularly the post-war period, but maybe for much longer. We've taken it for granted. We've exploited it. We've used it for whatever we've wanted to use it for. And in fact, it does deliver enormous benefits. It delivers food, it delivers nature, it delivers space to build housing and to put infrastructure. It delivers beauty, which as you all know is my favorite word. But I think we also know that it does so um, in a way that's increasingly dysfunctional. We don't and haven't woken up to the carbon crisis for nothing. And the biodiversity crisis is equally um, an imperative that we are not dealing with. We've heard repeatedly throughout our evidence how we were making tiny steps in addressing more effective use of management of carbon. Tiny steps, patchy steps, good steps, of course, through our field guide to the future in individual initiatives. But land is, in a sense, the single most important resource that we possess in this country. And we've been incredibly wasteful and incredibly siloed in our approach to it. So actually, I completely agree with Barbara. It's not good enough for the department to say it doesn't need a strategy for either rural areas or indeed for the land. And I hope, in fact, that this will be the turning point where we realise how much more effective we will be if we join up the dots. We have so many inconsistencies at the moment. We have water companies paying to take nitrates out because farmers have been effectively encouraged to put them onto the land. We have efforts to plant lots of trees, but we're finding it incredibly hard to know where to plant those trees. We're building houses. Can tell you. I know you can tell us. <laughs> but, but we're not doing very well against the seven million or so we're trying to... Thank goodness for your northern forest. I'm from the North Pennines, so I'm very excited about that. But we're also making all kinds of dysfunctional decisions around building houses on the floodplain or using greenfield sites when actually urban regeneration is an entirely um, and much more effective vision. So actually, our report, someone said earlier, we recommended a lot more building. We certainly didn't. We just said, if, if the decision is to build new housing, it must be done beautifully and sustainably and in ways that don't trigger massive carbon-dependent car movements and other um, wasteful methods of transport. So we, at the end of the day, I think land is a thread running through our report that we have to take it a lot more seriously. We have to value it for all its multiple functions, as Helen said, much, much more clearly. And we have to be much more intelligent 
about the way we use land for it, the best purposes. We grow a lot of grass in this country, and actually good meat is going to be part of a sustainable diet. But so, as we've heard, are a lot more vegetable, vegetables being produced and a lot more soil being protected. We have a terrible record on, on soil erosion at the moment. So we have a lot of messages in our report about the waste in the system, the wasteful byproducts that, in a sense, the public pays for, whether it's in poor food or in environmental costs that we don't have a proper um, economic framework for capturing. If we can get land use right, if we can think strategically and intelligently about land to deliver those multiple benefits, some material, utilitarian, but many about the spirit, about the human spirit, about regenerating nature, about getting a much more ambitious future for biodiversity improvement, for beauty, for people's joy of being able to appreciate the countryside, we will be in a much better place. And today marks the moment where we need to take that big step. Thank you, thank you. And that passion that you describe there has come through in one of our recommendations for a national nature service. Mm. That recommendation came from, uh, partly from farmers saying, there is so much we would like to do, but we don't have the bandwidth, or we don't have the capacity. But it also came from meeting young people in communities all around the UK who wanted to know how they could help, what they could do to help, how they could either volunteer for short periods of time or spend much longer developing the skills for a regenerative economy. So we, I think we've already tapped into that sense of yearning to do more and to find ways of making the contribution that's needed. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to really see that one to fruition. Let's, um, let's take some questions from the audience, shall we? So we'll start, that was a speedy hand, well done. Take that one first and have a little look. I've done over there and we'll take one from this corner too, great. So let's start with you. Thank you. I'm a member of the public, a rural resident that is impacted by farming, good and bad. Um, my question is about confidence. It's also about capacity. It's about carrots and it's about contingencies. I live in rural Suffolk and I, my MP was formerly John Gummer. I was also a teacher working with very disadvantaged children. So public health, education and the environment are my concern. And my question is, having had people in our area who were vegetarians that died of new variant CJD because of the contaminated blood, where will public people like me have confidence that government will do the right thing, not just in terms of the public need, but the farmers' needs? They will only go where they're led. And from my perspective, we're not being listened to. There is very little capacity because small holdings are being lost and the um, I'd like to know what is going to be done to turn that round. So it's Thank confidence you. in public health because of things like contaminated blood that's still not resolved. Thank you. So I'm going to take two more questions and the panel can pick them up. So Don, I think you had your hand up here. Thank you. Thank you. So Don Curry. Um, Firstly, can I congratulate the Commission on producing an inspirational report. 
Can I also congratulate you on ensuring that Brexit was delayed? <laughs> so so that you have an opportunity to really influence policy making. Um, I, and having been around this course before, as Helen and Fiona and Barbara knows, I'm also irritated by the lack of a rural strategy acceptance by the minister. But to achieve the inspirational vision that you outline in the report and the world that we, we would uh, endeavour to drive towards, it does require a massive mindset change on the yeah. part of policymakers mm. and on the departments of government and its, the raft of agencies who are there mm. to provide support to actually engage together and yeah. buy into this and um, my concern on past experience is the willingness of departments and agencies to mm. do that. Mm. Um, you know, Secretary of State sadly um, move on and uh, yeah. you lose those who've committed to a vision uh, and government change, and this requires a long-term commitment to deliver yeah. a fundamental change. Yeah, thank you, John. How are we going to do that? Great, thank you, John. And there was a hand just over there. Thank you. Uh, Alex Laird, Living Medicine, and uh, from the new Real Food campaign which is a lot to do with health and food. Um, my question is, I'm so with you on the joy of food and plants. My question is, can we, can all of you, can we all um, promote the idea of the joy in beans? Because these are a truly affordable food. They have high protein and they are a traditional staple of the British Diet. What, what was the vegetable that you mentioned? Beans. Oh, beans. As in Lovely. beans and lentils. I thought you yeah, were yeah. referencing the beetroot. <laughs> As you know, we, that's our signature vegetable. But okay. <laughs> but bean, beans are good. <laughs> they need promoting. Yes, thank you. So we've got questions about confidence and capacity, about joining up across government and promoting otherwise unloved vegetables. Beans. Beans. Should we start with you, Helen, on the confidence issue and, and maybe Shirley as well? How do we rebuild confidence in UK production? I mean, I, I think I'd like to try and uh, bring that question together with, uh, mm. with Don's a little yeah, bit, sure, actually, sure. because for me, I think this, uh, more than anything else, the reason I, uh, this commission feels important is not actually because of any of the particular recommendations we've put out there. I think, you know, helpful though I hope they will be. But it's about a process um, of bringing a much bigger tent of people together, which is not political. We've had support across the parties today and from many, 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 many organisations. And the only way we're going to continue to hold government's feet to the fire, whoever's there, um, or to try and make sure that despite all the lack of joined-upness that we see in the rest of the world, the only way we're going to be able to make progress is to solidly work together with a much, much, much bigger tent of people and creating a mandate and a force for change that means that politicians, wherever they sit now, will act uh, when they can see that they've got sufficient public support behind them. Mm -hmm. So I think we know all those problems, but this has got to become a, a rolling wave, a force which 
actually ensures these things happen yeah. and where we play our part in making mm -hmm. them happen. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's an incredibly ambitious vision, but that's what I want this to be. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to pick up the, um, the health? I will, I, but I, I would okay. also like <laughs> to say <laughs> on, on what Donna said. In the report, we talk a little bit about the Future Generations Act in Wales. And as uh, many of you will know, that, that long-term commitment is what we'd love to see in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland. I, I think it's the long-term thinking that this report really talks about and, and needs to have with the 10-year plan, but for longer than that. Um, and, and every aspect of the report requires us to think about our children's children, soil, beauty, health, all of those things. And so, um, I mean, one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that we can consensually, that we're all in agreement, say that we need instruments like the Future Generations Act to keep holding government's feet to the fire about um, and, and, and move that long-term thinking because we have a lot of short-term political thinking that means that, that things go wrong and, and good, good plans never happen because of that. So I would really like to see that. And I know the Chief Medical Officer in her report in December 2018, her most recent report recommended for Health 2040 to have a health and well-being index. And I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that this appears in the Prevention Green Paper, which is due at any moment, I understand. Um, so I think there are things that we should all be fighting for along those lines. Um, on the um, confidence, that's a really, I think that's so hard when trust is in there. And we see it in, in the public health sphere a lot around vaccinations. And part of that's not having your questions answered where you've got a really um, important question and nobody's giving you the answer, so you're not, you're not that clear. And um, so I'm no expert on um, variant CJD, but Public Health England are. And I would say, talking to the regional director in the east of England, um, would be a really good place to start and have them come and talk to you because um, the UK has one of the best, you know, infection control, public health answers where other countries come to us. So there will be good answers. Uh, I can't give you it, but I think um, building confidence around that's so important. You both have lots of experience about working joined up across government. So if well, I just think, I mean, we have been around this too many times before, actually, at one level. But two things are different this time. First of all, we have a government that has accepted that we have to get to carbon net zero by 2050. So for the first time, we have a really long-term goal, and we're not, clearly not, making progress already towards it. The Climate Change Committee's uh, publication recently made it clear that we've got to do a lot more. So, and that has been backed by the sense of climate emergency and biodiversity emergency, which is a very popular and now very much more seen as something the public care about. So that makes a big difference, I think, that there is an imperative and some long-term stakes in the ground that we have to move towards. The second really big thing, and I don't think we've ever done this before, is we've stitched health into the very, very heart of this debate. We have made, and this is thanks actually to the people on this panel, it's nothing to do with me. I mean, I'm absolutely thrilled we've done it, but the expertise on this panel to work out how to get those health messages absolutely stitched and have suddenly shed a light that this is, a, this is about everybody in a way that the environment you know, can often see in a preoccupation of some and not everybody, even though it is and should be. 
So being about everybody's health, everybody's individual well-being, I think puts another very powerful imperative that suddenly makes a big difference to the, the feeling about urgency, about joined-upness, and about imperatives. And so I think we've got to do it this time. Um, and I think those two factors make me feel more optimistic that we can. I'm not going to lose that beans. question about beans. beans. Beans on toast. Well, I, so one of my team is a Noma-trained chef, and he's put together a selection of canapes this evening. Have we got any beans amongst the canapes, Elliot? So we're ahead of you. We're right there. We're right alongside you. We have one of the most uh, absolutely underrated, underrated, and uh, we should be eating more of these fibre-rich, plant-based proteins. Although Kenny's still got his Carlin peas that he bought at the Abergavenny Food Festival <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> they take a while to go down. Excellent. We're going to take. Yeah, sure. Yes. I think the questions that have been raised about why this is different this time round, Fiona hit, hit the nail on the head. I mean, there is a real sense of crisis: climate change, biodiversity, and human health. And there are some real movements arising, particularly with young, young people. But the movement I think we've all got to grasp is, you know, we can nag governments, we can make them much more, we can try to make them much more cross-departmental, integrated, joined up, and get policy joined up. But the reality at the end of the day is that might not happen. But I, I think, you know, the signs of life and in communities across the country. So it comes down to us and local communities. If, if we can't get government join up, we can get join up on the ground. And yes. that, I think, is something we've really got to foster. Uh, in our select committee report, we put forward the notion that in those communities that are really struggling, where there is no leadership, where there's no natural leadership emerging, that we should be putting in community development workers who help foster togetherness, mm. initiative, skills in local communities that are struggling to take leadership and I personally think that that if the government wouldn't do that there must be many many charities who'd be interested yeah thank you well said time has run away from us and there'll be lots of opportunities for you to meet and chat to commissioners um, downstairs so please do stay and have a drink with us try out some of the beans and the other homegrown vegetables and locally sourced food that we have for you. I want to say some thanks and I want to just tell you a little bit about the next steps. So the Commission actually doesn't finish today. This presentation of our reports is a punctuation point. Uh, we continue until the end of October and we are absolutely delighted to say that our incredibly generous and supportive funders, Esme Fairburn Foundation, have indicated that they're keen to talk to us about how they can continue to support our work and the implementation of recommendations going forward uh, in ways that are about more than just the money. So we're really looking forward to being able to do that. And I'm going to just say an extra special thanks to Esme. Two years ago, um, Caroline Mason stood on this stage and gave us such permission as a funder to go out and do all the things that we've been able to do. And we are enormously grateful to her and to her team for having done that for us. It was a huge investment but it was such a bold and courageous and far-sighted move, and we are enormously grateful to them for that. Thank you to Ashton, too, for your support. <laughs> I want to say 
thank you to all of the commissioners who are here. So commissioners who are not on the stage, please quickly stand up so that you can be thanked. There's a whole row of them over here, look. Tim, and you, you've been just extraordinary. Yeah. Up, down, up, down. They have been an absolute privilege to work with, really holding our feet to the fire and pushing us really hard to go further and faster and broader than perhaps even we thought we might be able to do. So we're enormously grateful to you for that. Um, and my team here at the RSA are just phenomenal. Oh, please stand up. Stand up. Who else is here? Who's... Tom, yes. Josie, is Josie here? They have been... And, and Josie over there in the court. And, and there have been others coming and going on the way. They have been absolutely phenomenal. We have worked through some incredibly turbulent times. The world has been changing around us faster than we could keep up with it. And they have been an absolute joy and pleasure to work with. And I will get to the end without actually weeping. They threatened me. But if I didn't, if I, I might not do it. So... Um, Thank you, and thank you last, but absolutely not least, to everyone who has contributed so much and so generously to the work that we have done together in this report. There are people around the country who've been running leadership inquiries in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, in Devon, in Cumbria and in Lincolnshire, who've just stepped up and taken their leadership. People who've hosted the bike as they've travelled around the country and who've contributed all sorts of perspectives and experience and challenged us at times and pushed us further. We are so, so grateful. And it is a wonderful and inspiring illustration of the passion and the, the commitment that people have throughout the country to do the work that is needed in these really, really challenging times. So please... Join us downstairs for a lovely drink and a healthy snack. And please take some reports. I'm really proud of the, the quality of the paper reports that we've written. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to the RSA, who've been extraordinary hosts. We are hugely grateful. That is it for this evening. And thank you to Sue. Oh. Yes. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.